Turn over to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read a few verses from Exodus 20 later on, not actually right now, uh, because today we have a, a bit of an unusual sermon. It's the last in a series on Exodus that we've been enjoying together since the beginning of the year, and I'm going to take today as an opportunity to hit some highlights, to sort of bring back to our memory things that I hope we'll take with us that shape how we see ourselves and what we've been tracing through this great book. And, and I'm going to get to uh, some further verses in Exodus 20 a little bit later. First, I want to set you guys up for what we're doing, not just this morning, but for the, the months to come. So for the next three weeks after today, uh, other elders here at Trinity are going, to be, are going to be beginning for us a series that we're calling Songs of Redemption. Something that we have said often through the Exodus series is that this story reverberates through the rest of the Bible. And one of the clearest places to see that is in the Psalms. The songbook of Israel used to worship God throughout uh, century after century of Israel's life together is full of references to the Exodus, songs that are about what happened there. And those songs are wonderfully varied from one another in the kinds of things they pick up from the Exodus and the ways that they apply them to the life of Israel moving forward. And so for the, for the summer, we're going to try to trace some of those themes together. Each week will be a separate psalm. One of the great things about that is that it, it, it fits the summer well. Last summer we did something like this too, with individual psalms where for, for all of us who are moving around, traveling a lot, people come and checking us out uh, who are just moving to the area, it helps to have a series in the summer sometimes where each week can be understood on its own terms pretty easily. And I think that's what you'll find for the next couple of weeks. But if you've been with us through the series in Exodus, I think you'll also find that what you learned from Exodus will be deepened. And your ability to worship because of it will, will be increased because of the time we spend together in these songs. Shaka's going to start us off next week with Exodus 15, which is kind of like a psalm built into the Exodus story that we skipped over earlier in this series. And then from there, it'll be psalms through the end of the summer. So that's what you have to look forward to. Today, we're going to look back, mostly going to look back. Uh, one of the things that we've tried to say um, all along is that this story is bigger than just a story of something that happened at one particular time and place to one particular people. It's got more than just historical interest to us. It's a story in which we come to understand who we are, what we can expect from God, how we ought to respond to his grace in our lives, and what we ought to look for from our futures. One of the things that makes humans humans and separates humans from, other, from other, uh, others of God's creatures is that we're relentless interpreters we're always taking the things that happen to us, the circumstances that come into our lives, events, people, places, whatever, and we're making sense of them. And the way that we make sense of them, rather than just reacting on instinct to everything that happens, the way that we make sense of them is to plug them into stories, bigger stories of what's going on in our lives or what's going on around us, ways that, that, that other events, other people and other places affect how we see what happened to us today. You know, and dogs don't do that, do they? They just eat, they play. They run when they feel threatened. They just act. They just act on instincts. We step back. We analyze. We, we plug things into larger systems of meaning that are usually come to us through stories. And, and, and that's something I want us to, to be able to do with more intentionality, more clarity and focus because of the time that we've spent together in Exodus. And this morning is where I'm going to try to make that case. One of the things that I, I think I quoted this guy early on in the series, maybe in the first sermon overall, one of the commentators I was reading was talking about, the, he was writing to pastors and, and talking about how to apply Exodus to, to people when you're preaching. One of the things that he said that really shaped me and that, that I've tried to bring into these sermons is that in Exodus, especially during the narrative parts, 
we're not really trying to boil down these narratives to one or two to-dos. We don't boil down the stories to a central takeaway that you're going to go out and do this week. They're not really like that. It's not, that's not what they're for. Instead, he said, what, what, the, what we should be aiming for is learning from Exodus, this is a quote from his commentary, what God is like, how he thinks of his people, the links to which he'll go to deliver them, and the proper response of God's people to these, this great deliverance. Applying the book of Exodus begins with understanding what the story is supposed to do and then seeing how we as God's people fit into that story. What I want to do this morning is try to point you back to some highlights, some greatest hits, if you will, that we've seen so far in Exodus and to try to explain how you can take that story into your own story and make it your own. I just want to walk us through this story as a story about the grace of God's redemption, a story about the grace of God's commands, and then finally, especially looking ahead, a story about the grace of God's presence. I'm going to start with the grace of God's redemption. I mentioned I'm going to read from Exodus 20. I'm going to do that a little bit later. I want to start with just my main takeaway from all the stories that we covered in the first half of our series. One of the things I think I'm going to remember the most is is the constant acts of God's grace. The constant focus of this story on God's initiative, on God's decision to act to save Israel at every phase of their story. I mean, there are definitely figures in these stories that I think we're meant to learn from. Definitely figures who were portrayed in a positive light. Things that, that we can learn from their character or from what they chose to do when they chose to do it. But this is not a story full of heroes. Over and over again, the focus of the story has been God. What he's done for his people. I, mean, I, could, point to, uh, I could point to a lot of examples. I just, want to, I just want to remind you of a few of my favorites. I think of the way the story was set up. Exodus chapter 2 tells the story of God's people broken, literally, by what they had had put on their shoulders by Pharaoh, who was, who was squeezing what he could out of them down to the last drop. Pharaoh fears their growth. He sees that they're now a population that's surging. He's worried that they may end up turning against him. So for now, he tries to break them down and use them, and then later on, decides he's just going to try to control the population through killing them off. Either way, in whatever case, Pharaoh sees them as his. They're his resource to be, to be used however he wants. At some point in the story, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole book to me, Israel's gotten to the where all they've got left is a groan. The end of chapter 2 says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. I love that. And God heard their groaning, verse 24 says. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's a beautiful story, beautifully told. And it's a story about him. About what makes God different from Pharaoh. About who Israel is to God, and what they can expect from him. This is no negotiation. Israel doesn't offer him anything but their groaning. They have nothing to pay with. They have nothing about themselves to recommend them to him. They have nothing but their desperation and his promise. And that's enough. 
If there was going to be another hero in this story besides God, the God who knew, Moses would be a leading candidate for that status. And there's no question that Moses looks great at points in this story. He is someone we can learn from, that's for sure. But remember back where Moses started? You remember chapters 3 and 4? When God meets with Moses to call him to go into Egypt, what he finds in Moses is a man who's afraid, who's looking for a way out who's negotiating with God, trying to get himself out of it. He ultimately throws up his hands and says, please, just send somebody else in chapter 4. And Moses was right to wonder why God would deliver as he said that he would. One of the things that God tells Moses in that conversation at the burning bush is that he is the I am. He's the one who's not attached to anything else to bind him to, to, uh, to, to do anything for anyone. He needs nothing. He's not looking to you know, pad his bank account. No one, no one can hold him under their thumb as if he owes them anything. He created just by a decision of his will. He upholds the world by a decision of his will. He's God. He's just told that to Moses. And so Moses is wondering, well, well why should we expect you to deliver us? We have nothing to offer. Moses is locked into this barter system. That was what his people, the people he lived around, expected. The gods expected from their people. And then Moses hears the Lord speak. In answer to all these questions, God tells him what he's going to do and why and binds himself by the only force that could possibly bind him, his own word. In chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I promise that I will bring you up out of your affliction in Egypt. God's grace. Then we see God's grace doing exactly what he said he would do. The story of the plagues is a story of God using his power, the great I am who depends on nobody for anything, harnessing his power and aiming it at the needs of his people in their bondage. He sends plague after plague to expose that the, that the power the Pharaoh claimed over his people was a fraud. It was empty. It was borrowed power at best, and now God's taken it back. He sends plague after plague on Egypt, and as those plagues increase, Israel gets spared. While Egypt is dealing with, with their world coming unglued, disintegrating all around them, Israel in Goshen where they happen to live, is completely spared all of these things. Why? God's grace. And then the final plague, Passover. God is going to take the firstborn son of every home in Egypt that doesn't have blood over the door. But he tells his people, Israel, if you will follow my instructions, if you will kill a lamb, then you won't have to die. Put the blood over the door, my angel of death passes over those doors. God's grace spares Israel from what Egypt got. We're getting a hint in that story that, that they must be spared too by the blood of a sacrifice. And soon after, God continues providing. The Red Sea, they're pinned up against something they could never cross on their own. All, Pharaoh and all of his army is bearing down on them and God parts the water so they walk through on dry land. Then God destroys their enemy. And if, if that wasn't enough, mere weeks later, Israel's wandering around in the wilderness wondering where they're going to get food and water, complaining that God brought them out there to die. Already they've forgotten his goodness. Already they've forgotten how his grace had delivered them. They're complaining to him, grumbling. And what does he do? 
He gives them food from heaven. He gives them water that they can drink that had been bitter, now turned pure. He gives them water from a rock because there was no spring nearby. Time and again, by grace, God gives them what they're asking for. It's the same thing that drives this story all along. And through the story comes to define for the world who God is. This story, what it was meant to do was make his name known. Who is this God? What is he like? What can we expect from him? And time and again, story after story makes the same point over and over and over. This is a God of grace who delivers the desperate who have nothing to offer him. A God who gives what is undeserved freely because that's who he is, not because of anything about the one to whom he gives. Sheer grace. And that's what you can expect from him too if you'll trust in him this morning. This story sets the pattern of redemption that's going to show up again and again throughout Israel's history and it's going to explain why Jesus had to come and why Jesus had to die. Our only hope, friends, I mean me and you, our only hope this morning rests on the grace of God that Exodus has shown to us over and over again. Now that's a different story than one of the dominant stories we live with. A story that calls us to achievement that tells us that we are what we accomplish, that we'll only get what we can earn, and that actually drives us to to prefer earning what we have than receiving it from someone else. I mean, come on. Who among you would rather get a participation trophy than one that you earned and somebody else didn't? Be honest. Don't you want the kind of trophy you have to win? Don't you want distinction? I do. I'm guessing you do. And I'm guessing you've been exhausted by that as much as I have. Your life is going to be full of opportunities for you to pursue the win. Exodus is an opportunity to get out of that story and plug into a better one. A story in which you get what God gives you by His grace. And yeah, that means you don't get to brag about it. But it also means you get to rest secure. Not merely as secure as your last, most recent win. It's a better story, friends, and an invitation to us. Exodus reveals the God who sends Jesus so that we can be delivered just as Israel was. Think about Exodus and listen to how Paul describes the gospel in Titus chapter 3. I think it's one of the, it's one of the many places you can go in the New Testament to see the gospel framed in exactly these terms that that we've been tracing together over the last few months. Listen to Titus chapter 3, one of my favorite gospel summaries. We ourselves were once foolish, Paul writes, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. He's pulling on Israel's understanding of themselves in slavery. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, verse 4, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, not by our achievement, not by our wins piled up over time, but by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The story of the Exodus is the story of Jesus, and it can be ours. But it's always a story of God's grace and redemption. A second major theme that we covered this, this, in this series, 
a second opportunity for a better story than the one you might be tempted to embrace for yourself is a story of the grace of God's commands. This grace is the theme throughout this story. It's a story about God and what he does for those who look to him. But it's not a cheap grace. God's grace is a grace that comes with an agenda. It's not freedom from some sort of external threat that had been holding us back, but freedom for a new and better purpose, a purpose that God defines and equips us to pursue. That's what we've been saying, especially in this part of our series on the Ten Commandments the last ten weeks. God, God's commands, this is, this is the thing that we've been trying to emphasize here, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. We've been trying to emphasize that God's commands come to us from the exact same motive that God's deliverance, God's redemption came from. It's from the same grace that sets Israel free, that Israel is given a new and better way to live. God's already redeemed them. He's not looking for them to earn anything from him. He wants better for them than what they would have apart from his revealed rules. So to accept this kind of God, this grace of his commands, would be to reject another common story around us. A story that our journey to freedom is always a journey of self-discovery, of self-acceptance, and maybe even self-definition. Common story is the story of a life that, that is moving towards more maturity and more health, more freedom, by moving away from expectations and boundaries that anybody else might put on you from the outside. In that story, the problems to be overcome are external. They're outside of you. The problems are out here. The solution is going to come from in here, from your looking within to understand who you are and to separate yourself from all the things that have been put on you from the outside. But in this story, in the Exodus story, as real as those external problems were, they were just the beginning. As soon as Israel is out of Egypt, the focus of the story shifts to what was going on inside of Israel, to internal problems, internal bondage, to sin that still needed to be addressed. What we need for flourishing, for purpose, for direction and peace is not freedom from external boundaries, but more grace from the outside, from outside of us, coming to us from God who loves us enough to give us his rules. I'll tell you one of my favorite, my favorite sections that we covered in Exodus that set up this vision for what God's rules are meant to do for us was in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, Israel has, has reached the mountain. They've come through out of Egypt, through the wilderness. Now they're at the mountain where God is going to speak to them. And God gives them a kind of prequel, a preview of what's about to happen. He's, he's not giving them any rules yet. He's now telling them why he's going to give them rules to begin with. And there's a phrase that he uses for Israel that I think perfectly captures what it is to receive the grace of God's commands and embrace them for your life as you're part of your story. He calls Israel his treasured possession. Treasured possession, Exodus 19.5. Now that's a loaded phrase. I mean, at one level, he's calling Israel his possession, And they've had very recent experience with a ruler who thought that way about them. In the beginning of the story, that's what Pharaoh thought about Israel. And when God confronts Pharaoh at the beginning of this story, that's where he confronts him. He says, they're not yours. They don't belong to you. But not because they are and of right ought to be free and independent people. That's not why they don't belong to you. They don't belong to you because they're mine. 
And I want them to come out and serve me. That's a bold-faced claim to authority right there. That is God saying, they're mine for my purpose, not their own. And I realize that authority, claims like this, do come with baggage in our experience of a fallen world. There's more examples, perhaps, of abuse of authority than healthy authority in your own experience. And you're not wrong to wonder, how can I know this claim to authority from this God is going to be trustworthy? How can I know that if I submit to his ways, I won't get what I've experienced from others? How do I know that I can trust him so I don't have to pick and choose between which commands are good for me and which ones aren't? That's a key question that I think you're right to be asking. And the answer to that question, the way you can trust this authority to be for you, even when you don't understand or like what he says, is grace. Grace shown to Israel before they were ever asked to obey. And now grace shown to Israel in the things they are asked to obey. What God has done for Israel to deliver them shows that they don't have to earn his favor. And it shows that they can trust what he commands them. So yeah, Israel is God's possession. He's making that claim and doesn't shy away from it. They are not their own. And yeah, that means death to life on their terms. It means an end to picking and choosing what's best for them. But being possessed by somebody else doesn't have to be a bad thing. The new boss here is not the same as the old boss. Pharaoh did claim possession of Israel, and God makes the same kind of claim. But remember how God refers to them. They are his treasured possession. Possession, yes, but they are treasured. There's a tremendous power and beauty packed into that little phrase. See, for Pharaoh, Israel was a possession but dispensable. In fact, that was partly the point. He was afraid about how fast they were growing. He was trying to wean them down. He wanted less of them. And so he squeezed them to the last drop. For him, they were a possession like I possess you know, a Dr. Pepper. I'm going to drink that thing down. I won't leave even one drop. But I've got another possession that I relate to very differently from the way I relate to a Dr. Pepper. I have a possession that was handed down through my family uh, that that I've now ended up with, and I hope my kids and their kids will end up with. So I'm a history nerd. This possession is especially treasured by me. It's a a diary from the Civil War times that I guess belonged to someone in my family who served in the Civil War. It was passed around a camp where all of his buddies signed their names and where they were from and what battles they'd been in and what, what had happened when. I've got this diary full of... 1860s era testimonies in their own account of what their lives were like, what their experience was like. This thing is precious to me. It is a treasured possession. So you know how I relate to that thing? I only put it in very specific places. I only bring it out at very specific times. I only show it to very select few people. Feel free to apply by email. I, I, I let my children see it. I want them to see it the way I did when I was a kid before it was mine and to, and to see how beautiful and powerful this thing is, how incredible it is to have a piece of history in your own hands. But this possession of mine, boy, it's treasured. Everything I do is with an eye to its protection and preservation. It's flourishing and it's security. I don't relate to this diary like I relate to a Dr. Pepper. I love both of them, but in different ways. One is just you know, a quick-hitting pleasure. Another is almost in a, in a way bigger than me and my desires for it. I'm, I want to pass it on to someone else. To be God's treasured possession is, 
is to have God relate to you the way I relate to that, to, to that diary. Now, that means being his and not your own. To be his possession means you can't define your own life. But it also means to be treasured so you don't have to. You can rest in his protection, his provision, and just trust the commands that he gives you even when you don't understand them. The difference between belonging to Pharaoh and belonging to the Lord is the difference between being a slave and being a son. Pharaoh had said, mine, over the people of Israel. And God said over them in Exodus 4, 23, let my son go that he may serve me. So to make this story your own, friends, to make this story your own would mean embracing the boundaries that are given by God are good for us. They're good. Making this story our story would mean looking at the Ten Commandments the way we have for the last ten weeks to try to understand why did God give this? How is this a path to our flourishing? How can we be faithful to obey this command? But it doesn't stop there. It also means looking throughout all of God's word from beginning to end for the principles from it that we can take knowing that these are the things that God has called us to. It means looking carefully at the New Testament, at the letters from, from the apostles whom God sent so that, and set apart so that we would know what it looks like to honor him and live in light of his grace. It would mean looking wherever we can, for God's ways, wanting to know what pleases Him, trusting what He tells us is good for us, and never, ever, ever meant to harm us or restrict us or withhold something better. It means accepting His commands are always an act of grace. Now, there's one more theme I want to point you to before we're done with this series. This one I say for last, partly because we didn't touch on it much in the series. We actually stop short of where this theme gets its best treatment in the book of Exodus. But I'll save it for last because I think it's, it's the ultimate goal of everything we've considered so far in Exodus. And it's one of the most clear and helpful pathways to understanding who Jesus is and why we need him. Exodus is a story of God's grace that builds to the story of the grace of God's presence. When I was doing some background reading for this series last fall, um, something struck me in a new and fresh way. I think I'd heard it before, I'd, I'd seen it before, but there was something about the way a particular commentary writer named Victor Hamilton put it, that it just it struck me and it stayed with me all the way through. This guy says that the focus of Exodus is more on why God delivers Israel from Egypt than on how he delivers Israel from Egypt. He helped me see the point of this book, the way the story is told, what it's wanting to, what it's, what it's wanting to impress us with is more why God delivers Israel from Egypt than how. Now, it's the how that tends to pop. It's what we notice. It's what we remember. catches our attention, holds on to our minds. These incredible details of God's deliverance. You know that passage I read earlier of Israel groaning and their cry coming up to God and God hearing it and God seeing and God knowing and then deciding he's going to act. Or we talk about Moses and some of the amazing stories of his wrestling with God and then his faithfulness to stand toe-to-toe with the greatest power he'd ever known. The stories of the plagues and the Red Sea and all the other things that I mentioned earlier. These, are, these details of how God delivers are, are probably the thing that most of us associate with Exodus. I certainly have. But if the story of how God delivers Israel from Egypt... We're really about, about the details. 
what went down when, who was involved. That story could have stopped at chapter 14. That's where they're gone. They're out. They're free. And even if God's commands were the main point, the commands come in chapter 20 could have stopped there. The book goes on for another 20 chapters from the, from the point where, that we've reached. We're only halfway into the book. And all of the remaining 20 chapters come with Israel not moving a step from where they already are. They stay right here at this mountain for the rest of this book. Why? Because Exodus isn't just or even primarily about how God delivered Israel. It's about why He delivered Israel. He delivered them to give them the gift of His presence among them. To be their God with them, among them. That's why nearly half of this book is devoted to rules about how to build a tabernacle that God's presence would dwell in. And how to manage that tabernacle once they had it. The final goal of Exodus, Victor Hamilton argued and showed, showed me, is, is, is the why behind this story. And that's the worship of God in God's presence. That's the point. Now, there's two signs I want to point you to. That this central aim of the story is not close to finished yet in what we've covered so far. This central aim, Israel, God's people, worshiping God in His presence as the point for their deliverance. This central story is not close to finished yet. I want to point you to a couple of reasons why. The first comes in that passage that I wanted to read. I mentioned earlier I want to read to you. This is not something we've read yet. This is, this is looking ahead, not back. This comes after the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, as soon as the Ten Commandments are concluded, look at how the people respond to God's law. Verse 18. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. If, if we were expecting a happy ending, a kind of climactic moment that puts a bow on the stories we covered, this is not that ending. Think about it. The people have just received God's grace in giving them these commands. And their response is, enough. No more. We, we can't take more. They're, they're afraid and they're not wrong to be. I think what we're seeing here in a glimpse is that Israel knows by instinct what the story to come is going to show over and over and over again. If the goal of God's redeeming of them out of Egypt is worship in God's presence... If the goal is that pure and glorious joy in doing what they were made to do all along, then friends, the main barrier that they've got to overcome is not Egypt and the threat that their chariots pose. And it isn't the wilderness and the testing that it brought. The main barrier to them getting where God always meant to take them is themselves, their own sin. They are not yet worthy 
to be in God's presence. They're going to need grace to be worthy of His presence. And to cross that barrier, they're going to need a mediator. Someone who can go ahead of them. For now, that's exactly what God has given. I love that image of the people stepping back, standing far away. They know better than to go where that, where that darkness is. And Moses, all by himself, step by step, drawing near to the darkness where God was. They're going to need a mediator. That's the first sign that this story is not over yet. The second sign is the tabernacle itself. I mentioned that the next 20 chapters are all about how to set up a tabernacle where God will live and how to manage it once it's set up. Who can go in? Who can go to what parts of it? What sacrifices do they have to bring in? When do they bring those sacrifices in? All of it, carefully scripted, because this is life and death we're talking about here. This tabernacle is their greatest gift from God, but it is not safe. It's dangerous for those who are unworthy of God's presence because of sin. All of it, all of these rules, all these regulations, all of it are saying, I, from God to His people, I want to be among you, but it's not safe yet. Not yet. This story is still ongoing. The themes of the story are set, but there's still a lot of development to come. For God's people to get what this deliverance was always aimed at, they're going to need a better mediator than Moses. One of the things we try to do every, every week is to pull the threads from this story all the way to Jesus because they all end there. This has always been a story about Him. And nowhere is that more clear than in the theme of God's presence and the beauty that comes for His people when they get to enjoy it without fear. So one way we make this story our story is by looking through this story ahead to Jesus and coming to God through Him ourselves because there's no other way. Israel had prayed, had cried out, had said to Moses, uh-uh, we're done, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. That was their response to God's words. To me, that echoes remarkably, wonderfully, beautifully in John chapter 1. John's gospel is full of allusions to Exodus. We've pulled out a lot of those as we've made our way through this story. But John chapter 1 is especially chock full of allusions to the Exodus. And I love the way it begins. Israel, knowing they're not worthy of God's presence, don't let God speak. And John 1 begins, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This Word from God, who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what word he uses there when he says that he dwelt among us? He uses the word for the tabernacle. For what Exodus was always about. Now this word that had meant death to us has come among us and set up shop right here where we can see Him. And we beheld His glory, John 1 says. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What grace? What truth in seeing God and having Him among us, tabernacled right here in a body like ours? Verse 17 of John 1 says, Through Moses came the law. It goes right back to Exodus to explain this. But through Christ, grace and truth. What's different about this word made flesh than what Moses offered them? What more could he give than Moses could give? 
For that, you've got to read the rest of the Gospel of John. But you don't have to read very far to get the answer. John the Baptist, in preparing the way for Jesus, looks at him, coming closer to him, and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moses couldn't do that. But where does John the Baptist get this image of a lamb? In the Passover. Jesus dies at the end of John's gospel at the time that Israel was celebrating the Passover, just as they had since this Exodus story. Dying as the lamb to take away sin once and for all and make God's people worthy of God's presence. What happens when he dies? The veil is torn from top to bottom. There is no barrier anymore from human sin for us to enjoy God's presence. And how do you understand this story without the Exodus? It's the tabernacle that makes sense of Jesus putting on flesh. It's the Passover that makes sense of Jesus dying as a lamb to take away sin. And it's the goal of the Exodus, God's people seeing and enjoying Him as He is in His presence. It's that goal that helps us understand the joy set before Jesus and all that He did. The joy that He talks about, the goal and purpose that He lays out for us in John chapter 14. Listen to this. Just before he dies, telling his apostles, his disciples what to expect, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see the theme? God's presence. That's his point all along. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' ascension to His Father all make sense because of the themes we've considered together in Exodus. And that's how we make the Exodus story our story. This week, I, uh, I, through, I saw somewhere, somebody posted um, um, an incredible quote from one of the guys who I've used most in this story, the, the series on Exodus, a guy I've mentioned up here before a couple times, a guy named Alec Motier commentator. He's, he's passed away fairly recently. Really helpful Bible scholar teaching commoners like me and, and, and like many of you what it is to, to understand the big themes of the Bible and connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. Somebody posted him talking about Exodus and talking about the ongoing power of the story we've spent the last few months investigating together. He, the way that Motir set it up was, imagine you run into, run into an Israelite out on the street and you ask him, so tell me, what's your story? What might that Israelite have said? How might he have answered you? Probably something like this. This is a quote from him. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, he came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and He led us out. Now we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have His presence in our midst. 
So he'll stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Now, Motier said, think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing, almost word for word, couldn't he? It's our story. This is it. It could be your story. If you look to the God who redeems by grace and give up a life justified on any other terms. Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace this story as our own. That you would wean our hearts off of any other story that may woo us for a moment, that may promise us more, but that ultimately cannot deliver. I pray that you would protect us from seeking out any lives that we might live on our terms as if they could last when we, when we know from your word that they can And I pray that you would help us together to be constantly pointing each other to the truth of who you are that we've learned together through this series. Thank you for showing us what you're like. Thank you for telling us so clearly what you expect from those who trust in you. And thank you for giving us one another to keep telling these stories and to keep helping us understand how what we're dealing with, what we're facing this week, makes sense in the light of what you've shown us here. We pray that you keep that work going in us. In Jesus' name, amen.